you would turn in your Bibles to Luke 17, 1 through 10. Luke 17, 1 through 10. If you don't have your Bible, uh, there's a, ch- a pew Bible or a chair Bible in front of you. And uh, our passage will be on page 929. Page 929. I was very encouraged by Brandon's charge to us uh, and there in the introduction, the call to worship. It kind of wanted to make me get out of my seat. And then Paul and Caitlin led us in song. And again, just um, very thankful for, for Paul's commitment to creating an order of service that, very, that flows very naturally and that points us to the gospel as we will be relishing in this morning. So Luke 17 1 through 10, this is what the word of the Lord says. And he said to his disciples, Temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him, and if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. Verse 5, the apostle said to the Lord, increase our faith. And the Lord said, if you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea and it would obey you. Will any one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him, When he is coming from the field, come at once and recline at table. Will he rather not say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink and afterward you will eat and drink? Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. Let's pray. Sovereign Lord, you are the author of this word, and I need your help to be faithful to it. So please, Lord, help me in this time, and may you be worshipped through this. In Jesus' name, amen. Are you the type of person who likes to follow directions when you're cooking? Or do you prefer to just kind of wing it? What I mean by wing it is you don't take the time to measure anything. You may set out the ingredients, but you just bypass the measuring cups and the measuring utensils. You may be like me, look at the picture that's on the box of what it's supposed to look like and say, that looks easy enough, I can probably do it. Last semester when we hosted a community group, I was feeling quite ambitious to be extra hospitable, and I decided to make, whip up some chocolate chip pumpkin muffins. I am the type that does not like to follow directions, even though my wife urges me to. After thinking back on what ingredients I had added to the mix, I realized I wrongly mixed in baking soda instead of baking powder. 
and our friends are very gracious, but I reminded them saying, hey, you don't have to be so gracious, you can throw these in the trash. It was an innocent and common mistake, right? I give everyone permission to throw them in the trash, so when when I don't follow directions, um, it can often lead to us making trash muffins. In our passage this morning, Jesus gives us directions for what a disciple should do. What a disciple should do. This morning, our takeaway should not approach discipleship with a I'll just wing it mentality. Instead, we should seek to be wise and follow the directions of our Savior. The point of this passage this morning is that Jesus makes challenging demands of his disciples, but he gives us the grace. He gives us the grace to do what we are supposed to do. This morning, if you're taking notes, I have four points. These four points will not be on the screen, but these are very brief points, so you you can probably jot them down after I read through them. We will look at what disciples are to do. One, they are to give care. I find that in verses one through three. Second, forgive always. Disciples should forgive always. I find that in verses four, four through five. Disciples are to trust God in verse 6. And then lastly, we'll look at the fourth point in verses 7 through 10, that disciples should remember grace. Disciples should remember grace. I just want to set this up before I go any further, before we delve into the text, that, friend, if, if you are an unbeliever this morning, if you have been invited here by a friend or a family member, or maybe you have wandered off the street looking for a, a warm place to sit, If you are an unbeliever, know this, that what we go through, what we look at as Jesus commands us in these next 10 verses, it's going to be hard for you to apply this to your life if you do not believe, if you do not have faith in Jesus. And so your primary responsibility this morning is to trust in him right now. When he is Lord of your life, then the the duties of being a Christian disciple will be delightful and joyful no matter how challenging and difficult they may seem. So let's look at some background. Uh, The book of Luke, so Jesus is launching to the disciples, anyone who would follow him, parables. Then we get to chapter 17 where he kind of puts on the brakes of parables. He does share in verses 7 through 10 what is called a, a micro parable or a small parable. But he's telling the disciples of, of what, what they should, how, how they should live. They, they shouldn't look at the lifestyle of the Pharisees. They shouldn't model their lives after them. Instead, he should, they should listen to what Jesus has for them to do. And these are some very hard demands. The things that Jesus demand of us, it's very hard and difficult and challenging But the big takeaway out of all of this, not to spoil the end of the sermon, but that he does grant us the grace to do so. He just doesn't leave you with a list of commands and says, do these. But he grants you the grace so that it is a delight instead of a burden. So let's look at our first point. What's a disciple to do? Disciple is to give care. Let's look at verses 1 through 3. And he said to his disciples, temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one whom they come. It would be better if 
For him, if a, a millstone were hung around his neck and he were to be cast into the sea, then he should cause one of these little ones to sin. Pay attention to yourselves. Sinclair Ferguson comments on this, saying that Jesus is passionately hostile to anyone who would come and stand in the way of one coming to know him. Jesus' audience would understand that a millstone would be too large, very weighty, something uh, three tons would be the weight of these stones. They would be used for grinding grain or flat, for flour or grinding olives for oil. Uh, this system was, was so big that it could, it could uh, provide necessary essentials for entire town. So these were very big stones. And it would take a large animal like a donkey to turn these stones to do the grinding. And so while this would be shocking to the audience in this day of having these large stones be tied around one's neck or hung around a neck and then them to be cast into the sea, what really was terrifying to them was what the sea actually represented. So these stones, these large stones would you get thrown into the sea and you go straight to the bottom. That really wasn't what they were hung up on. They were afraid that they would be cast into the sea, a place that represented terror and evil. So Jesus is warning his disciples and any of us today that this severe form of punishment would be better than you or I causing any fellow believers in the faith to sin. So friends, are you standing in the way of others who want to know Jesus? Or are you setting up fellow believers to be tempted to sin? Or are you pointing them towards holiness, to follow Jesus? Parents, are you provoking your children to anger? Married couples, does the content of your conversations around singles have a high view of marriage? Husbands, are you quick to serve your wife, or do you bemoan her requests? Students, are you helping others to cheat to get a better grade? Phil Ross has said this, Someone who needs to know Jesus is watching how you live. Someone who needs to know Jesus is watching how you live. So what do they see at work? What do they see in the classroom? Have we ever thought about what damage our sin can do to others? The entertainment we promote. When we ignore theological questions from our children or coworkers, we need to give care not only to believers in this body, but to others who would come to know Jesus. And we might be the only example of the gospel living out that they are watching. In an article from World Magazine titled, We Will Give an Account for What We Watch, pastor and theologian Kevin DeYoung states this. Recently, I preached on 2 Corinthians 6, 14, 7, 1, which includes Paul's command, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. Who talks like this anymore? Be separate from them. Touch no unclean thing. Let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit. That's not the message we want to hear from the church. But it is almost certainly the message virtually all of us need to hear. It is hard to imagine many of us are too careful with the sex, the nudity, and graphic violence that we put before our eyes. So friends, are we to be indifferent to evil? Are we to be indifferent to evil? Our LBC covenant states this, that we should exercise an affectionate care 
and watchfulness over each other. So how should we as the church, how should we without dipping into living legalistically, exercise care and watchfulness over each other? Now I suggest these few things, that we would take careful inventory of our own hearts and while we pursue certain activities or entertainment, that we would have fellow church members in our life regularly, but gently who are watching over our life and, and that we are willing can be vulnerable, but we are willing to take correction and to receive correction. That we would remember to take believers' consciences into account. Is what they are pursuing or participating really sinful? Or do they just do things differently than you? Because we have also committed ourselves to the covenant, which also states, be slow to take offense and always ready for reconciliation. Lastly, a good question for us all to ask ourselves is, is this good for my soul? Since Jesus says in later here that we must pay attention to ourselves. So we have the obligation to one another, but we also have the obligation and responsibility to watch over ourselves. And friends, the world does not set itself up like this for people to invade into their lives. But God has designed this local church not so that we are micromanagers of each other's lives, but we are carefully and lovingly and with holiness in our mind, so that the other person, that we're, we're helping them to follow Jesus. So do you allow people to speak into your life without feeling fiery or on the defense? J.C. Raw has commented on this passage saying, Let us watch jealously over our tempers and tongues and the discharge of our social duties. Anything is better than doing harm to, to souls. The cross of Christ will always give offense. Let us not increase that offense by carelessness in our daily life. So friends, what's a disciple to do? A disciple is to give care to fellow believers and to closely watch our life and our doctrine. Secondly, verses 3 through 4, forgive always. A disciple is to forgive always. Proverbs 28.23 says, He who rebukes a man will afterward find more favor than he who flatters with the tongue. Proverbs 27.5 says, Open rebuke is better than hidden love. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. So rebuke in the light of Proverbs, in the light of Jesus, is something that we ought to do. We ought to, as Matthew 18, we should follow the order of Church discipline of, of going to that person ourselves. We shouldn't take it necessarily to the pastors first. We shouldn't just shoot off an email. We shouldn't be gossiping or be busybodies about the sin that was done against us. And though we should be slow to take offense, Jesus is not telling us to tuck this away because he knows that it will grow, we will grow bitter over time. Our wounds will fester and we will become irritated. He commands us instead to go to that brother or sister and rebuke him or her, but not to rebuke them just to, to, just to slight them, but rebuking them in the hope that they would be restored, that they would repent, and they would be restored. But friends, all the easier thing to do, our, our natural thing to do, our tendency to follow our flesh is to not pursue reconciliation or to think that the person who did the wrongdoing should actually come to us first and that they should apologize Again, Matthew 18 tells us to go to them, to go to them, to, to go to them and to rebuke them if they have wronged you. 
One of the quickest ways a Christian can deter others from Jesus is housing unforgiving hearts, is housing an unforgiving heart. And that's, that's the connection between the, the previous verses and this verse to forgive is that the people will sin against you. People will wrong you. And what should we do? We, we shouldn't sulk. We shouldn't hold those things to ourselves. But we should go to them. We should pursue them. And that's a loving thing to do. To rebuke them is a loving thing to do. Now what happens if the person who has wronged us does not repent? What Jesus prescribes here, it, it, that question is unrelated to what Jesus prescribes here, but the question comes to our minds, what do we do, what happens if a person who has wronged us does not repent? Should we still forgive them? And I believe yes. Out of love, we should forgive them no matter what, what they may or may not occur on the other's end, we should forgive them. Mark Dever comments that sin should never have the power to cancel our love, even if it makes our love change forms. What if Liberty Baptist Church, what if this church was known as a congregation where forgiving hearts are an abundant supply? Practicing forgiveness is so countercultural. It's, it's, a, it's a picture of the gospel to a world that hold, holds grudges, that grows bitter and becomes resentful towards each other. It's a world that ghosts rather than forgives. It's tough to fight this as our flesh wants to convince us that we are owed something or that the other party has to get their act together before we can actually demonstrate forgiveness towards them. Friends, it's better to be quick to forgive than to allow bitterness to slowly take over your heart. When you forgive someone, do you, do you hold on to bitterness? Or does this trans, transgression against you dissipate when you say, I forgive you? I, I had a brother who, who gave me a call uh, one day, and he had done something that well, was not too, too grievous at all. But he asked my forgiveness. And I said, brother, I, I forgive you. And if I were to go to my wife or someone else and to still hold that grudge against him, to say, you know, this guy, he, he, really, he really irked me. I'm, I'm very disappointed in him. That I, really, I truly would not have demonstrated true forgiveness. So when we forgive, just like Jesus, when he forgives us, where, where do those sins, where do those iniquities get thrown? They get thrown out to the sea. In order to truly understand our need to forgive as Christians, we must look to the reality of the sins that we have committed and the sins that God has forgiven. What has God forgiven you of? We must remember the grossness and the severity of our own sin. Think to yourself, did God withhold mercy from you? Has he withhold mercy from you? Has it somehow and for some reason run out? When has God's mercy run out in your life where he is giving you what you deserve? We all are obviously here this morning, gathered together, able to worship God. And we come here in his forgiveness. We come here in his mercy. The, the forgiveness of God is an ever-flowing fount. If you have known the forgiveness of God, then you must follow his example. The sins done towards you and the repetitive nature of those sins done towards you does not give you license to be unforgiving. And this, friends, is a difficult task when a friend wrongs you over and over and over again and again and again. But we are told, as they repent, to forgive. And this idea of forgiving, there, there's this, Jesus commands 
uh, in, other, in other, another gospel, he says seven times 70. But we see here that he commands them, not seven times 70, but seven times a day. And as many days as God leaves you on this earth, he commands you to forgive. And this is a number, seven is a number of completion. So it's not that you only forgive once or only forgive seven times and you're good for the rest of the week. But it's a continual, it's a repetitive, it's a, a forgiveness that always occurs in your life. Or that you have that you are forgiving others in your life. Friends, you never have a day off to forgive someone. Verses 5 through 6, let's look there. The apostle said to the Lord, increase our faith. Increase our faith. So on the tale of Jesus telling them to rebuke and to forgive, the apostles turn to their Lord and say, increase our faith. And the Lord's response is this, if you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. Instead of disciples asking for a change of personality or a change of circumstances where they would no longer run into people that they would have to forgive, they ask for their faith. So they recognize that they have faith, but they believe that they need more of it. The grain of mustard seed is commonly misinterpreted as one of two things. One, that we need more faith. We need it to increase. Or two, the little faith we have can do big things, therefore we need our faith to grow, and God must do this for us. The more it grows, the more we can do. And often, those who fall into the prosperity gospel camp will say that if you don't have faith, or, or if there's wrong done in your life, or things aren't going your way, then you just you lack faith. You need to examine yourself and why God is not giving you more faith, they would say. But I believe by taking these verses previously into account with the rest of Scripture here, that we should interpret this passage to mean this, that Jesus recognizes that the disciples feel the weight of the task to forgive, to face daily temptations, and to rebuke. Jesus is saying that they need to recognize who their faith is in, who their faith is in. He does not answer their question, but directs their attention to himself. They need to trust him. They need to trust him. Friends, are you looking for more faith this morning? Do you find the faith that God has given you sufficient for salvation? And of course, of course it is. Remember when you're placing your faith in. Remember who you're placing your faith in. Are you trusting God? He has given you the ability to forgive even when it seems impossible. So why does Jesus mention a mulberry tree being planted in the sea? That sounds quite ridiculous. Friends, Jesus is teaching us this morning that faith he gives us is enough to obey what seems almost impossible to obey. If he were to increase our faith, we would not know, know what to do with this great amount of faith. And we would probably abuse it. We'd become sorcerers using our faith as a wand to magically move trees rather than trust, being trusting disciples in God. If you're struggling this morning to forgive someone either currently or someone who has wronged you, in the past you don't need to... You don't need to go to God to ask him to increase your faith. Rather, you must be reminded this morning that the faith God has granted you is sufficient for obeying his commands, the commands to forgive, even the worst of transgressors, even seven times in a day, every day. So what's a disciple to do? A disciple is to trust God. A disciple is to trust God. 
to trust him for the forgiveness that you may feel weak in, that you feel like you may not be able to forgive. But you must trust him, you must believe in him, that the faith that he has given you as a disciple of his, that that faith is going to grow and it's going to carry out the demands and the commands of Christ. And lastly, in verses 7 through 10, remember grace. Remember grace. What's a disciple to do? To remember grace. So after Jesus gives us warnings and commands, he doesn't leave us to do these on our own, to try to muster up enough strength, enough power on our own, but he turns our minds to remember his grace. Verses 7 through 10, he shares with us a, a little parable. Will any one of you, he says to his disciples, will any one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he has come in from the field, come at once and recline at table? Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink? And afterward, you will eat and drink. Does he thank, does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. One of the most notorious showboats in NFL history is Chad Ochocinco Johnson. He was fined what CBS Sports estimates was several hundred thousand dollars at least over the course of his career for end zone celebrations. So if you don't remember, I mean, this was like back when I was like in high school watching uh, NFL, but I think it was him. It was either him or Terrell Owens that they would score a touchdown, a simple touchdown. They get paid millions of dollars to do. And he would go, one, one person would go and like grab his cell phone, act like he was calling. Another one I think was Chad Ochocinco, I think he would like grab popcorn and just like shove it in his mouth. They would always have these like funny and clever celebrations. I, I just don't understand how, I don't, if they plan it beforehand, I don't, I mean they're very good off the cuff I guess when they score. Um, but fines aren't the only thing that Johnson splurged on either. The Cincinnati Bengals receiver coughed up $30,000 of that small fortune during week 13 of the 2009 season. And what was the reason? He showed up the Detroit Lions defense by putting on a sombrero and poncho after burning the secondary on a deep touchdown. The NFL reported at the time that Johnson had set aside $100,000 that season for fines and took the penalty as a challenge to step up his football celebrations even more. So this guy, before the season starts, he like sets $100,000 aside just so he can celebrate. That's, that's actually quite, uh, he's not a good steward of his, of his money. <laughs> so I'm not here. I know we're, I, I mean, for those in the room who are Chiefs fans, I, I know it can be a sore spot in your, in your heart or mind, one of those two. That, that I'm not here to rag on Tyreek Hill for throwing up the deuces when he goes um, and, and makes a touchdown. Or the peace sign, is that, yeah, peace sign, deuces, same thing. Um, but these guys get paid millions of dollars to do what they do. What they get paid to do, touchdowns, interceptions, sacks. Too often NFL players and, and even just any professional athlete, they celebrate like they haven't ever caught a touchdown or they haven't never dunked the ball. And I, I, I think that's just kind of even right now, I'm just baffled by the fact that these yeah, professional athletes, I mean, do you have, am I the only one that thinks this way, like, you get paid to do this? Act like you've scored before. I mean, I get in, in like the moment, in the, in the pressing moments where it's like the fourth quarter or the second half or, or the four, yeah, basketball fourth quarter, that uh, 
Yeah, you'd celebrate after like a, a, a buzzer beater. Like, that makes sense. Crowds like storms. Like, I get that. But they get paid millions of dollars to, to, to do what they've, they, they know, know what to do. Anyways, so, friends, do we sometimes celebrate too much about what we have done for God? Obviously, we don't get paid millions of dollars. I mean, someone may get paid millions of dollars to do their job, but we don't get paid millions of dollars. Joel Osteen, maybe, gets paid millions of dollars to... <laughs> to preach, but uh, yeah, we, we don't get paid millions of dollars to be a Christian, but Jesus has laid his life down for you and me. He has forgiven us of our sins so that we would be, and he's given us his spirit, given us the faith, the grace to do what we were supposed to do. So do we rest in the past successes and forsake examining ourselves daily? This micro parable that Jesus teaches us that what Jesus has commanded us to do in the previous verses, this is what we're supposed to do as Christians. On the days that we do what he commands us, we're not to expect any further reward or recognition from him. Just like the master does not thank the servant after the servant. So this, in, in this context, it, it seems like this would just be one slave or, or one bond servant that this master has. And after they would be tilling the fields or plowing, after they'd be working outside, they would come in, and their work wouldn't stop. They would be doing the dishes, or they would here they'd be ser- he'd be serving a meal. And friends, after we have forgiven, after we have rebuked, after we had pursued reconciliation, our work doesn't stop. There's more work to be done, and we shouldn't be. Seeking to be entitled, I think that's, that's a huge thing in our culture is we, we seek entitlement. So when we have followed after what the Lord does, we, we then think that, okay, I can, can take a break. Now God owes me something during this time. So if, if I do for him, then he will do for me. Instead, we must re- rest in the ultimate reward, the only reward that matters. Being able to be considered heirs with Christ. Just far better than any recognition that we'll ever receive here on earth. So there are days when we think, man, God must be proud of me to be a part of his family. Or I don't think God could fulfill the Great Commission without me. And we forget that what he has called us to do is what we are supposed to do all along. True, whether we eat or drink, we must do all to the glory of God. That is true. But we must not get caught up into thinking so highly of ourselves. So Jesus calls out his disciples saying, which one of you? Which one of you? The Pharisees were the ones that Jesus was trying to take the minds of the apostles and turn it from looking at them. Pharisees, as we know, as we, if we were to read in Luke 18, so after this chapter, we would see the Pharisee who praised to God saying, I have fasted, I have given enough, I have a religious status. What seems like an impossible task to forgive so much is made possible by Jesus who forgives readily and repeatedly. And friends, we are so sinful. We do not give Jesus any reason to save us. The grace he has allotted you is enough for you to to forgive others even now. Then Jesus asks his final question in verse 9. Does he thank the servant for doing what he was commanded? The answer is he doesn't. And this may seem maybe kind of harsh. I mean, whenever Audrey obeys my little daughter, my two-year-old daughter, when she obeys, 
I always give her a high five, um, and she gives me a high five back. Um, and, and that's probably sweet of me, but, but Jesus, doesn't, Jesus doesn't have his hands out giving us a high five. We're supposed to do what he has commanded us to do. And as disciples, we are to forgive. As disciples, we are to rebuke. We are to watch carefully after others. And he has designed this local church to do that in. So what do we think God owes us? What what do we think that God owes us? God does not give us blessing or care and help because we went above and beyond for him. No, he does so based on his grace alone. So therefore, we are able to freely serve him. God is never a debtor. He is never in need of our grace. There is never praise that he gets that he does not deserve. And we are always owing praise to him. And there's never enough praise that we can give him that he does not deserve. So our service to him is never done. If we understand that it's by grace we're able to serve him. And we're given grace to accomplish all that he commands. So friends, our servanthood to him should be done in delight and joy. He has brought us into a kingdom where serving him isn't burdensome, frustrating, or overbearing. Ryle again comments, And even when we do our duty, it is not by our own power and might that we do it, but by strength which is given to us from God. Claim upon God, we have none. Right to expect anything from God, we have none. Worthiness to deserve anything from God, we have none. All that we have, we have received. All that we are, we owe to God's sovereign, distinguishing grace. Unworthy servants is what we should call ourselves at the end of the day. After working for our master, after working for our Lord, is in humility that we are able to see ourselves as unworthy, unprofitable, that we don't work for him, we don't, we don't work for him, we don't go into overtime for him. We work so much that he has to give us back pay or that he has to pay us time and a half. God is never owing to us. He's never in debt to us. We are the ones that are in debt to him. So what's a disciple to do? A disciple is to give care. A disciple is to forgive always. A disciple is to trust God. And a disciple is to remember grace. So friends, in conclusion, is being a disciple joyful or delightful to you? Are you following God's directions or are you trying to wing it on your own? Follow the Savior's directions this morning. So consider these three things. Examine your motives for why you serve God and His church. Consider approaching a fellow church member today to start meeting up regularly to help you to be watchful over your own life. And immerse yourself in this church, covenant with this body of believers. If you are attending, if you may be taking the four-week challenge, commit yourselves this morning to the local church. Pursue church membership. It's, it's, It's the best thing you'll do in your life. Make yourself known to others and consider committing to more than just attending on Sundays, but commit your entire life. And may this hymn ring in our hearts as we follow the directions of our Savior and the grace that he gives us this week. And it might sound familiar to you. Nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress. Helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. Let us pray.